Hey, deserving listeners. A lot of you have been emailing us for the past, I don't know, few weeks saying that we should talk about The Queen's Gambit, which is a Netflix miniseries. So let's talk about it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Karkonda. I'm a therapist and a professor, and I gave this a 7 out of 10. Ooh, my name is Umberto Castaneda, and I'm a home loan illumination officer. <laughs> I gave it an 8. I'm Colin Miller. I work for Psychology in Seattle, and also I'm working with Brian Falduto and the Gay Men's Mindfulness Collective, and I gave it an eight as well. Yeah. So let's get into the psychology of Queen's Gambit. We'll get into what we liked and disliked about it in a second, but people come here to talk about psychology, and the first thing I want to talk about is the medication that Mm. she was taking. What did you two lay people think of the medication? I got the sense, I, I didn't look it up or anything, but I got the sense that they were being overt with uh, the, the colors so that we would know when one, when she was taking one versus the other. Uh, and then they kept that, those same pills throughout the series, even as the years passed. I, my guess was, again, to let the, the viewers know that's what she's taking. I, I didn't imagine that all that medication was always the same, but maybe it was, you can tell me. But um, I was horrified. <laughs> At first, when I'm like, oh my gosh, they used to sedate the orphan kids? No. And then the, the, the scene when she like downs a whole handful, I was like, no! Oh, I, I, I pretty much felt like I was the one ingesting the medicine at that point. Yeah. Colin, what do you think of the medication? A lot of the experience of watching it for me was on a symbolic level. And I would include the drugs in that. What, what I, let me clarify a bit because it's extremely vague. So I don't know how to play chess. I, I, I believe I know the way each piece moves, but in terms of strategies or comprehension of how to be good, that's kind of beyond me. So that's still true. Watch the show, still true. But I think on a <laughs> symbolic level, I still very much attach to what each game and play meant. And... It was the same for me with the pills that she was taking. Even though I didn't know what they represented in the real world, I knew what they represented for her as a character. And so I only know about it on those terms. Right. Okay. Well, let me talk for a bit about it. So in the show, and I believe in the book, it's called uh, Zanzalam, which is a fictional medication that doesn't really exist. And you heard them refer to it as a tranquilizer. But... Uh, and the symptoms that we saw from taking it was drowsiness. You see that in the beginning. She takes it early in the morning instead of at night, and she gets she's very drowsy and kind of out of it. Almost like she was zonked out like a zombie, which is yep. um, usually indicative of like an antipsychotic. But there are many medications that make you drowsy. You also see that she hallucinates. Because, you know, there was no real... I mean, you could you could argue that she was imagining the chessboard and she knew it was imagining, Um, you know, she knew it was her imagination, but the way they depicted it, particularly at the end, when she looks up at the ceiling, she clearly is Mm -hmm. seeing something. She, you know, she's seeing something and they make it look like a hallucination. They also made it seem like the medication helped her with her creativity, but in the end they showed, no, she doesn't need the medication to be creative. So, which I was happy about. They also showed that when she went through withdrawal symptoms, she got itchy and irritable. So it's unclear exactly what medication this is a uh, analogy to, but it's likely 
uh, an early benzodiazepine called Librium or chlordiazepazide. <laughs> Diazepazide. It's, uh, it was developed in the 50s and 60s, and it was one of the very first benzodiazepines. So you've heard of Valium, right? The two of you have heard yep. of Valium. You've heard of Xanax, right? Yep. So these are all benzodiazepines, and what they're used for is for anxiety. And I've taken them when I, for, when I go to the doctor for a procedure, like when I had a, a dental surgery where they had to uh, install a post into my jaw, right? So they had Ooh. to use several different drill bits increasingly in 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 width in diameter to to you know drill into my jaw and that you know they had, ah! they had to cut back my gums and and then they had to put stuff in there this was not a pleasant uh procedure <laughs> and awesome. it took a long time and i'm not great with these things anyway but and my dentist who uh asian uh, doesn't really matter he also has dental anxiety and he gave me a prescription for uh, for Valium and yeah. said, you know, take take two or three of these pills beforehand. And I did. And not only did the medication help, it erased the anxiety. I just, wow. I laid there without a care in the world. And I wasn't particularly high. I mean, I was a little loopy, a little drunk, if you will, but not a lot. I was totally aware of what was going on. And I wasn't even particularly drowsy. After the procedure, I immediately took a nap for like two hours. But during the procedure, I'm just sitting there like hum humdy dum, like as if I was watching a boring TV show. And it, it was the <laughs> weirdest thing. And so, you know, benzodiazepines work. And the nice thing about them is that they help you with anxiety right away. You know, with other medications, you have to take it over time. With this mm. medication, it's like you take it, it, it lasts for a certain amount of time, and then it's over. You know what I mean? And um, it makes you like a chess wizard. Yeah, so, so it it does make you drowsy. So, so that's correct. Then how they depict that, it doesn't make you into a zombie, though. It just makes you, it makes you not have any anxiety. It makes you. It's basic. The way I've described it is, it's like a six pack in a pill. Like you, <laughs> you take Valium, you take Xanax or whatever, and you know how you're drunk, but not super drunk, and. You, you don't really have any inhibitions. You don't really have – it's hard to scare you, you know, because yeah. everything is kind of dumbed down a little bit, right? Well, that's kind of what a benzodiazepine is like. And so you're not like a zombie when you have a six-pack or, a you know, three, three drinks or something. You're just more kind of carefree and, and things don't scare you as much. Hallucinations, you know, very off chance that some people might experience an hallucination with a benzodiazepine, but really not likely. And creativity, there are two possible roads with a benzodiazepine towards creativity. One is a placebo. It might have, you know, if if you if you believe, and it seemed like maybe that was what they were trying to say, was that the medication was wasn't it wasn't needed for her to be creative, right? Um, so it's either placebo or relaxation, because certainly when you're anxious, it's hard to be creative, right? It's hard to think straight when you're highly anxious and when you take a benzodiazepine, particularly if you've experienced a lot of trauma in your life, your brain might actually be in a more normal state on the benzo than off the benzo. Because some people who are chronically traumatized, as she likely was, 
your brain is in a constant state of distress. And this is why people turn, this is why when people are prescribed an opioid or opiate from their prescriber, people who are chronically traumatized and they're always a five out of 10, you know, the lowest distress they'll ever be is a five out of 10. They take, a, mm. you know, a Percocet or, you know, one of the other um, pills, pain pills, and they're a zero out of 10 for the first time in their life. And they wow. think, my goodness, this is a magical pill. I want more <laughs> of these. And then eventually you run out of money and you turn to heroin because it's the cheapest thing that you can buy that has the same effect, you know. I got the sense that, and, and again, I didn't know if it was a real medicine or not, but I, I, I was pretty sure, like, because they made such a, like, the pills were, like, always the same and stuff. I was like, okay, this is, like, a generic thing they're showing us. But I got the sense that they were indicating that she obviously was capable of great prowess already, but that um, the the sense I got is that the pill helped her, like, sort of see more things in reality which isn't exactly hallucination. It was more like maybe how uh, taking some other types of drugs might help you like see right. connections that weren't right. there before. Right, which some people will report with hallucinogens and other kinds of drugs, right? Uh, but not a benzodiazepine, <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Okay. <laughs> and actually this kind of bothered me because I was like watching the show and I was really interested. I was like, okay, what? what medication are they trying to get at here? Because, <laughs> and as soon as she started hallucinate, I was like, oh boy. Because really there's, there's very few medications that would produce a hallucination, you know what I mean? And certainly there aren't very many pills out there you're going to take in a hospital or an orphanage to help you be creative, <laughs> you know? And right. it just kind of bothers me that they have these just weird depictions of of medications, but you know what are you gonna do now? Like I said, it could have happened if you said the hallucinations weren't actual hallucinations. Like if you asked her, it's like, okay, what what are you seeing? She's like, well, I'm not seeing anything. I'm just it just sort of frees up my mind to think about chess moves, and it helps me to look up because I'm less distracted or something. And the medication, I'm guessing, it just helps me to relax, so I, I can kind of concentrate on what I'm good at anyway, you know, to be good at chess, there's no medication that makes you good at chess. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's no medication that helps you think five moves ahead. That There's only a medication that can help you relax such that your natural talent of thinking ahead can manifest. You know what I mean? So I didn't really like that, but, um, but yeah. Uh, have you ever taken a, a benzo, Colin? No, I have not. I have family members who take them for plane trips though. Right. So, yeah, a lot of people will take it for plane trips. Uh, it, it it does a double help there in terms of it takes away your anxiety and it helps you sleep. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, taking a, a certain... Now, I'm not a prescriber. I'm not a medical pro- professional. Never take anything I'm saying as, <laughs> as such or any of the rest of us. Uh, talk to a prescriber about all these kinds of things. Um, the mother took the... So to answer your questions, Brito, the color of the pill, I don't know. The pill looked a little suspicious, but I don't know. It maybe it maybe it uh, benzos did look like that and did have consistent uh, casings over time. I suspect not, but who knows? I, I did get the sense that even if they did, it was highly convenient for the show yeah, yeah. to not have to keep explaining what is she taking right now, what is right. she taking right now, and it was a very distinctive color too. Yeah. Um, also, uh, yes, they did give these pills out very readily during the time including to kids. And oh. it, 
you know, if you have a bunch of unruly kids in an institution, one of the ways you can cope with it, and they do that even to this day to some extent, and we saw this in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was also accurate, of if you just drug people up, then, you know, your job is a lot easier, right? Mm. Especially if you can force people to take a particular medication, right? Right. So uh, I couldn't find any specific reports on specific orphanages that gave benzos to kids, but by no means would I consider that to be strange. Um, so the mother took it too, which was has been very documented at the time. Have you, have you heard of Mother's Little Helper? Have either of you heard of that phrase? I have, yeah. So there's even a Rolling Stones song about this called Mother's Little Helper. I, there is? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. And it's very explicit. So in the 60s, it was, it was widely understood that in the United States and in the Western world that a lot of women were taking benzos on a daily basis. Uh, they were taking either Librium or Valium. Valium was the real famous one. In fact... Uh, it was the top-selling pharmaceutical in the United States for uh, 13 years, from 1969 until 1982. Whoa. Yeah, so a very— Until Viagra came out or something? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I don't know what the top-selling—I'm I'm guessing pro, you know, SSRIs are in there somewhere. Yeah. But a very, very popular drug. I, I can't remember the exact stat, but something like 80% of prescriptions or something were written— in you know in psychi in psychiatric psychiatric medications eighty percent or some some really high number of prescriptions were for benzodiazepines because they didn't really understand how they were better than um, barbiturates you might have heard of barbiturates in fact do you remember from Wolf of Wall Street when they get really messed up that's because they actually had a barbiturate and you remember them talking about it like how'd you get your hands on that stuff because they had made it uh, illegal or difficult to get your hands on yeah. And that drug had a lot of problems with it. And, but it was a similar thing. It was for anxiety that would help people. But it had a lot of other issues with it. And so when benzodiazepines came along, it was like, oh, all the positives with none of the negatives. But it was just <laughs> in relation to barbiturates. There were still problems, and there are problems, with, with, uh, with bar uh, benzodiazepines. Obviously, you can become addicted. They, you can have withdrawal symptoms. Um, Jordan Peterson, you yeah. might know, became addicted to benzodiazepines. Do you know Jordan Peterson, Colin? I don't. So he's a famous, I don't know what you call him, a podcaster who... Author. Yeah, who is, uh, I don't know, He he. some consider him to be, you know, alt-right sort of person. But anyway, he recently came out saying that he went into recovery for addiction from benzodiazepines. He sought treatment in Russia, I believe. In Russia, yeah. It was extreme treatment. Yeah. And according to him, uh, the withdrawal from the benz... So as he was taking... Ben he was taking benzos all the time. He says in response to his wife uh, being diagnosed with terminal cancer, and then he was so anxious that he was taking benzos every day or yeah. very frequently, and then a lot of psychiatric symptoms happened to him where he started to have all these brain problems. I don't know. Yeah. I, there are common ones, like you can have seizures or other kinds of things. But uh, And then he, went, then he stopped taking them, and the withdrawal was so terrible, they had to induce a coma for him, given how bad his symptoms yeah. were. 
and now after i don't know months after he has managed to get sober he's still according to him in a constant state of anxiety and he can't stop moving his he has to constantly pace and move and and mm. do gestures and he says he's in constant hell because of uh what benzodiazepines did to him so yeah so at the time they didn't know that <laughs> they 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 hadn't done the research or something and they were just handing these things out like it was candy and a lot of women were taking it and the the sociological aspect to mother's little helper where it was you have in the 70s a lot of women who are feeling oppressed obviously by sexism and you have uh, a lot of abuse that's happening and women are not allowed to do anything with their lives oftentimes and so a lot of suffering women from society and from misogyny and from abuse and from uh, being treated horribly. And they, you know, they go to the doctor and they're like, I don't feel good. <laughs> you know? yeah. And then the doctor's like, and the, you know, an old white guy is like, okay, little lady, take a pill and chill you, pill. And usually that would work, you know, and, is that where the term chill pill came from? Yeah. I mean, it is a chill pill. It definitely yeah. chills you out. Um, so uh, so that's what Mother's Little Helper comes from, is mainly from Valium, but also when you hear Xanax or you hear Librium or this medication that's in the, in the movie, I think. That is benzodiazepines. So anything more on the meds before we move on here to well, other psychological Well, one talk? question I have is what is the role, like what is the interplay between them and alcohol? Right. Because the mom also drank a lot and right. so did she. <laughs> Yeah, in the in the mo- in the series, she dies of liver problems, is what they said, yeah. or hepatitis because so hepatitis caused her liver liver problems. Yeah. But uh, and I sort of like this about the series is that they didn't really explain things a lot. They just they didn't go into they gave just enough detail where you're like, okay, that's that's possible. Yeah. But they didn't give so much detail where you're like, well, I don't know. Um, but yeah, when you, t- so one, if you take too many benzos, your heart will stop because benzodiazepines have a, an effect on the brain that causes essentially a neurotransmitter to be released such that everything slows down, including your breathing and your heart rate and alcohol does the same. If you drink a lot of alcohol, oh. your breathing will stop and your heart will stop. Or you'll be so relaxed that vomit will come up and you'll suffocate oh, right, while, right. while you're sleeping. Well, uh, benzodiazepines and alcohol essentially do the same thing. And so when you drink and take benzos, you know, say you're like, well, normally I take two benzos and normally I drink half a bottle of wine or something. Well, you take them at the same time. Boom. Now you have a problem. And and that Mm -hmm. happens uh, more than it should because people need to know about it. Uh, And of course, always talk with your prescriber about such things. And it gets out of control very easily. I have a family member who's dealing with that too. And um, I guess in order to kind of keep confidentiality, I don't know how much I can actually reveal, but um, you mentioned earlier that oftentimes um, heroin becomes involved when um, the access is denied. And um, yeah, that's totally the case. And it doesn't just stop with the person affected. It affects the whole family dynamic and... um, that family dynamic extends into um, all other family dynamics 
in the larger family network. So, uh, yeah, it's um, it's incredibly devastating when then when uh, the consumption gets out of control. Right, because the person is ashamed of their use and they hide it, and that it feels bad to everyone, including the person the person suffering from addiction and the people being lied to. The individual will likely be intoxicated to the point where it's hard to interface with them. Uh, they might also drop the ball a lot because they're either intoxicated and they can't follow through with promises or they're too focused on getting the substance because it's hard to get enough because your tolerance goes up. So, And then to watch someone just waste away or watch mm-hmm. someone almost die, yeah. these are you know very painful to families. And these, can, these things can be very, very powerful uh, addictive substances, habit-forming substances. I mean, you look at someone like Jordan Peterson, who's a psychologist and a professor at Yale. And no matter what you think about his politics, he's an intelligent dude right? who doesn't mess around with things that uh, other people would, you know, not a lot of people are going to look at him and say like, well, that's a dumb person. You know, that's and an unintelligent time during the days and stuff. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and yet he also had developed a massive problem and, yeah. and he knew better, right? There's yeah. no possible way that I don't know, but I'm quite sure he knew he was playing with fire and he did anyway because of, of how much suffering he was going yeah. through. Um, sometimes it's the only answer and you're, you're, you're better, you know, you're thinking, well, today, this is the only way I'm going to get through the day. And then well, you fast I forward mean, a couple of years and you're, you're down a hole. Yeah, absolutely. So it was super hard, actually, as I was watching the show, um, all the scenes where she was relying on the drugs or then she started drinking heavily because I just kept, you know, it's so relatable in the sense of that poor little child just was not given the proper, you know, initial starts in so many ways. And just the mess that must have been in her head constantly. Uh, and then, of course, yeah, she she didn't know how to really maintain friendship. She didn't really know proper boundaries. She didn't know almost anything about being a quote-unquote normal integrated person. And so, yeah, and so, of course, it made sense. Of course, you got to go to the bottle. you got to go to the pills. Uh, so painful. Yeah, I kind of like that about... The series that, and I wish they would have done a little bit more, but maybe that's just me trying to make things psychological and it would have been boring to watch. But I wished, I mean, to me, I don't know if this is how you read it, but we have this sort of difficult childhood that's referenced kind of vaguely. We know that there were difficulties when she was growing up. We don't know the nature of it, but we we see problems, at least what we're shown are problems, but we could imagine that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of all that. And then we see her later on as really distant and very cold. And when push comes to shove, she runs away. You know, you you see that she's, she doesn't relate to people very uh, effectively, shall we say. And what that results in is her being alone a lot and her turning to the bottle and her pills a lot. Did you see that when you were watching? Was that was that the narrative that you were pulling away, Colin? Yeah, I I kept thinking attachment disorder, attachment disorder, because the 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 bits we got through the little backstory scenes, as well as like the origin story of her mom trying to kill at least herself, probably both of them, 
um, was that her mom had big psychological issues that were not seemingly being addressed. And then her dad was maybe not really there. Maybe he tried. We're not really sure. And then her mom tries to kill them both. (laughs) And then she's at an orphanage with people that are maybe by necessity coolly detached so yeah i just kept thinking man she's got no no role models no examples of this is how you form a relationship this is how you trust someone this is how you you know anyways it was (laughs) yeah and (laughs) painful to just modify your nomenclature a little bit of not attachment disorder but attachment injury is more okay attachment injury yeah and the mom i was looking real closely it's unclear if she had any mental disorder I know that's kind of how she's portrayed because she seems unhinged in the series. But there was nothing in the way of symptoms that I saw. You you clearly get this idea that she she doesn't make good choices, you know. But there wasn't anything in there where it was like schizophrenia or something but, else. Like there wasn't any uh, indication. Well, but hold on. Because what we know of her is she was super smart. She was a professor or something. Or a biologist. Uh, no, she was... Yeah, she, she, like, she wrote a dissertation on math, I think it on was. On math. Yeah, she was a mathematician. That's what it was. Yeah. And so super smart and stuff like this. And then she becomes so dysfunctional that they live in a weird dilapidated trailer. And then this leads to her trying to kill both of them. Yeah. But that's not in the DSM, what you just described. <laughs> you know? I remember reading that chapter, though. <laughs> yeah. Someone who used to be a mathematician but now lives in a trailer and then tries to kill themselves. There, that's not, there's nothing in the, de- you could use that as like a jumping off point for a pretty detailed assessment from that point. But, but I liked that too, honestly. I liked that it was ambiguous. You know, it wasn't clear what the mom, what her problem was. You know, they didn't, they yeah. didn't really try to explain sure. that, which was a theme of the whole series, which I kind of liked. They, they didn't overly explain things, you know. C- Colin, what was your take on, uh, Beth's trauma and you know w- when you see her as an adult interacting with people did you get the sense that she was afraid of other people because of her past and she would turn to substances and chess to cope with it? Well something I think that meant a lot to me when I was watching it was how angry she seemed to be and how when she was playing chess, there was always this um, mm. this intense frustration that, especially when you see her earlier games, even though she's quite talented, you can always feel that anger. And when she starts to lose, that face changes. And the actress was really wonderful at portraying that. But it meant a lot to me because I've been reading this book um, with a book club, the one I mentioned earlier, the game It's Mindfulness Collective, uh, called The Velvet Rage. And it's from a gay man's perspective about the gay experience of having trauma that is unresolved and then coping with it by becoming successful, by having sex, by seeking validation from others. And I latched on to the moments where she realized that her adopted mom was going to benefit from her joy of chess. And there was going to be a a monetary extension to her passion. And I wonder if, and again, I'm talking 
story, not necessarily plot, because I think that in order for the story to be super clear, the plot had to be a little vague. So I can only speculate on an artistic level that they're trying to set up a story for our lead character where she's on a trajectory at the beginning to become like the mom, where she's all success, all intellect, and no system for connection. And throughout the course of the story, she's faced with obstacles that either um, detract from her ability to connect because she um, uses what uses external things to numb herself. And, and it's not just the drugs. We see her looking at magazines and copying hairstyles, getting clothes to appear a certain way. In other words, she's trying to control people's perception of her and present this physical success embody success so that she's not vulnerable and so i don't know about her trauma but it seemed like there's some there were um there was a an emphasis placed on her inability to be vulnerable and so Mm -hmm. I, i think that was kind of my biggest connect with her Right. And again, not super overt, but was clear over the seven episodes or so that especially from my perspective, when I'm looking at how people write characters like this, that she had a a quiet rage, as as you were pointing out, and a quiet desperation that she learned to suppress and would occasionally kind of sneak out, but then she would quickly pull away. You know, there are these little moments when she's with Benny or whatever, and he kind of hurts her feelings a little bit. And then she just like, okay, fine. And then she just turns away and she's just like, I'm done with this. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't like you either kind of a thing. And then more alcohol, more drugs, more chess. And uh, so that I thought that was done in a subtle way that um, didn't feel cheesy to me. And and there was this huge, huge arc, story arc moment when there were a lot of people that actually didn't hurt, didn't injure her that bad, or maybe sometimes not at all yet, that, that she fully like sideswiped or cut off or, but ben, uh, Benny, is it? Uh, I think that he, was Benny was actually, Thomas Brady Sangster. Yeah, he actually right. goes hardcore and, and draws a line for himself which i was proud of him he's like no you were mean to me you were rude whatever so no i'm done with you and i i mean i thought you know based on her previous character that would have given her the perfect excuse to be done with him and just like well you know but instead there was that awesome growth moment where she still reaches back out to him and she sort of like acknowledges that maybe he was right <laughs> and that was great yeah And that made that scene down the road where both of the men who she didn't really love maybe had infatuation with but wasn't truly connected to, and um, she she pursued sex and relationships with them anyway, they ended up being there for her at the end. I actually cried when they were on the phone, (laughs) and um, just the, the sense of support that they knew that she needed, and I think that was a really beautiful moment to to show because... I remember her saying, maybe it was to her friend from the orphanage, I don't remember which character this was directed at, but she says, yeah, I do break people's hearts. Or she affirms somebody that says, oh, yeah, 
his heart was maybe a little broken. She's like, yep, I tend to do that. And in that moment, I think she needed to see that people will be there for her and for her success, not because they're getting something from it, not because she then has to have sex with them in order to validate their connection. Connections can just be. Um, and also talking about her friend from the orphanage, I think the, um, the selflessness of her actions really taught her a lot. And it was a, it was truly special to see a young female character have to build up their morals and to reevaluate exactly what they value. Because oftentimes you see young um, ingenue actresses portraying characters who either are super good or super bad. And sure, there maybe there's growth, but they don't um, often have literally no idea what, what is right and wrong for them or for others. And to see her develop that was actually quite exquisite, in my opinion. Yeah, it just occurred to me as you're saying that, that this is kind of like the 2020 version of Legally Blonde or something. You know? <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, where yeah. you have a kind of fish-out-of-water, underclass person, woman in a man's world, succeeding with and with help of her friends you know yeah and uh but just done in a very 2020 david fincher-esque way you know <laughs> uh, by, by the way what was yeah. that a reveal about the chess world uh, like does it I, I never thought of it about it that way like when they uh adjourn for the day do they go and consult do, do, do they get help and, of and then i realized do. of course probably, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but it seemed like oh no isn't that cheating or something <laughs> well they basically implied that that yeah. he adjourned really early yeah and uh she looks up at him you know she's going on in the championship she looks up like yeah. what are you talking about we're in the middle of the match right uh but both of them get the advantage of being able yeah. to consult afterwards. Yeah. I just, I just didn't realize that was a thing. I always thought naively, like, no, they just, you know, sit there and think about it. Right. Uh, so let's talk about sexism. Three dudes talking about sexism. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, let me crack no, open my beer. Nothing, <laughs> nothing better than that. Um, so what did you observe? <laughs> uh, well. I, maybe a more sophisticated question is, what did you think of how sexism was depicted, Colin, in this movie, in this series? Well, actually, before I um, respond to that, I love that you just called it a movie. Because yeah. I really do <laughs> think this is an eight-hour-long movie, and I, and it didn't even have the, the opening credits to kind of break up that mysticism. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. felt like a movie. Yeah. And I would say that the... The movie <laughs> was absolutely perfect when it came to its depiction of what a woman would go through. And the reason that I think it was perfect is because they allowed for variance and they didn't strike bold strokes. They weren't everything related to they didn't take the avenue of everything related to success and separating from men and not engaging with your community or having family that's wrong and what is right is like dedicating yourself to a career and and to your own passion and having that drive it it allowed for the nuance of 
a character who desperately wanted to build a family, even though that's not what the story is about. So they don't focus on it that much. She wants connection. She wants stability. And I think she wants to build that for herself. So those things are connected. So everything that she's doing with her chess playing and trying to figure out how to not... It, it doesn't just become, this is the sports movie about becoming the best chess player, period. It's become the best chess player and have a life. And figure out how to incorporate that into an experience that you are a part of. And that's why at the end, where she's walking down on the street and seeing all of the, the old geezers playing chess, she has found both. She's found self-fulfillment and she's also found community. She knows she knows who her people are. And I think that the other female characters in the story help highlight that nuance. For example, the adopted mother I thought was a really well-written character because she's not wholly tragic even though she is a tragic character. We see her represent a kind of response to joy that I do believe was helpful for our lead to to learn from and to experience in the short time that she was able to. She's got obviously problems, but she's also a beautiful piano player. And yet she had stage fright. And I think there's a lot more there. I think that she had developed a narrative for herself that said, I cannot, I am a part of this system but that's part of what makes the story great because we're able to see how things can change for women who are like our protagonist or her adopted mom because maybe her generation didn't so much have the access to pursue piano if it wasn't in their in their destiny as put forth to them by you know the patriarchy or the men in their life whereas we see Harmon um you know, even though it certainly wasn't, she she didn't come into it with privilege, she's able to claim that for herself, and um, this is even a period piece. So, we see how that was in the 60s, and it just makes you more optimistic for how things are going to change uh, in terms of our gender dynamics in the future. I forget what you said. What was your rating? I gave oh, it an 8. Even 8. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to make sure that was... a. Uh, out there because I don't remember but yeah at the very end I don't know if this was on purpose but it felt very much like a uh, Mary Tyler Moore moment when she was walking through the streets because she has that that coat on and that hat on and she had a skip in her step just like Mary Tyler Moore did when she walked down the streets of where'd she live Cleveland or something I can't remember where she lived but it was it was not New York I don't think and it wasn't LA anyway point is is that I don't know if they meant that on a purpose, but it felt that way to me anyway. And she uh, finds her community. Yeah. Um, by the way, one, one thing that struck me, I've certainly seen it before, but it was portrayed really well, really drearily, but well, um, that, uh, the, the way they showed how like the husband is just like, he has his own little world. He's not to be bothered when he's reading his newspaper. Food better be ready. Um, the wife is like there. It's like an attachment. It's part of the furniture. Right. But the, the real life happens for him. 
he goes, he travels, he works, he works so hard. He's too stressed to be bothered and, and, with my And she things. talks so much. That was she his big talks, complaint. All talks. she did was talk all the time. Oh, yeah. It's so sad. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I'm of two minds of this production on sexism. On one hand, I agree with everything you're saying because I, th- I think it's uh, it, it shows the patriarchy. It shows Mother's Little Helper. It shows the sexism in the, tr- the chess world. It, it gives us as the viewer her perspective. So when she walks into the, the chess room and there's one woman in there and she's paired up with her, you just right. immediately get this sense of like they're shoved aside and we get it from her perspective and all the boys are you know these privileged white boys you know in, that are the the norm and then they're the weirdos cuz they're the girls and they're expected to to lose and they just placate them like you're not going to you're you know they, they didn't say this outright in the beginning it's just like you're not going to play him you're not ranked and you're a girl <laughs> you know what i mean yeah, this yeah. kind of thing um so it you know it was really throughout the whole production but um, the other mind I, I i have is that in a sense, and it would be a different production if they did this, they pulled some punches on sexism, I think. Because not that sexism was a monolith, you know, not that sure. society was a monolith back then. But there were moments when I thought there would have been more overt sexism and more overt uh, people saying, you can't lose to this person. She's a woman. <laughs> Yeah, you yeah, lost yeah. to a woman. You are a loser, you know, and or people trying to intimidate her, you know, because the men back then, sexism affects everyone, right? So for the men back then, they would have been given so many messages that if you lose, it's bad. But if you lose to a woman, then you right. might as well just be a woman. You know what I mean? Turn in your men card. Yeah. You, you're, it's like being beat up by a woman. You know, it's one thing to be yeah. beat up by a dude, but to be beat up by a woman then wow. And so I, I felt like there were moments where I thought, I feel like everyone's kind of subtly, the way that 20, I felt like it, it felt like a 2020 version of background mm. sexism in the sixties and the late fifties. I mean, it was overt. It yeah. was, it was intense. The, the sexism that was going on back then in some ways I it think was, it was intense. I think it was intense in the, context of the story it just i think it comes down to the way that it was written because there aren't as many scenes that directly relate to what we associate as sexist behavior that that is like obviously sexist behavior but it comes out in little things like the way that they have girls be or the values they're trying to give the little girls at the orphanage or you know whenever they're focusing so highly on the fact that as a chess player who's so good she's she's a girl it's a girl that's you know really good at this chess game and and i i think that part of the writing was done in that way so that you know, modern audiences who are watching this can go, yeah, I'm still dealing with that. Like, I still get that. Whenever I get straight A's in my family, I'm the girl that got straight A's. And so I, well, I, I, just, I got I think a that debate was about the- that, Colin. I got on a debate about that, though, because I actually don't. I, I think it's a unavoidable to point out v- deviations from a norm. 
And it would have absolutely been mind-blowing and the talk of the town uh, at that time for this story to happen in actuality. Mm -hmm. So I actually don't think that... Um, I guess you could say, well, you know, it should. there should be just as many women chess grandmasters as men. It's like, maybe, but the point is that there weren't. So clearly that would have stuck out. So clearly they would have said, wait, you're a girl? But I, I think... It's true, like the more I think about it, that there were moments where, and, and maybe it's because they were chess players, so they were already sort of on the nerdy side of the fence and on the maybe smarter side of the fence, so maybe they were more okay with with what was happening there. But I am actually, as, as, as you're mentioning, Kirk, wondering, wait a minute, why would they be like walking out of there? Wouldn't they be like, how did you cheat? Right. What is, who's helping you? Right, that, that would have been... Uh, more prevalent, I think. Now, who knows? Because there's a lot of variation. Like I said, we tend to look back in the past and say, like, it's all one thing. And could this story have happened exactly as it did? Absolutely. We, if if this was a documentary and there was just cameras around, it it could have looked like that. So I'm not saying it. It's impossible that it happened. But as I was watching it, I felt like it was almost too happy of a story, like. There were moments where I thought, well, those guys would probably, there'd probably be something sprinkled in there. Like, like when, even at the end, when they're helping her out, uh, it wouldn't be weird for one of the guys to say something like, well, she only won because we helped her because we're guys. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, at least for them to think something like that. Now, of course, that would ruin the ending. And I cried too at the ending, by the way. Uh, which but surprised dude, me, honestly. I was kind of like, I didn't expect to cry in this in this in this production. But, but, but Curry, hold on, because I, I I don't disagree with you. Like in the, I'm gonna go watch a I don't know um, a mother movie or something. But it, the, the the show was so sad at the beginning, and there was so much bad stuff that happened that you kind of have to try to balance it out a little. Totally, bit. I, and I get that. And but. As I was watching, that's why I say I'm of two minds. As I was yeah, watching yeah. it, I was like, <laughs> the sexism theme was definitely felt throughout the whole yeah. seven episodes. I definitely felt it almost in every scene. When she was interacting with anyone, I definitely got a sense like sexism was an aura in that room around everything, whether it was overtly occurring or subtly or even just well, we all know that you're a lowly woman kind of a thing, so we don't need to do anything about it. But at the same time, I kept waiting for there to be uh, it, it, it to happen more often and have, have it crop up in people that you wouldn't want it to, like with Benny or with Harry or something, mm, where they might, they might say, so why are you even playing chess? You should be like getting married and having kids because... Yeah, yeah. That was the way they saw things back then. And it wouldn't be weird for a nice guy like Benny or a nice guy like Harry to, to suggest, maybe you should just find a man. And may, maybe you should just, you know, I, I felt like it was a 2020 kind of lens on that time. Because if you, if you depicted that, I think what I would consider to be accurate of the time, I, me watching, I'd be like, well, I still like Harry and Benny. But they're a product of 1967. Like, that's just how, that's how everyone was back then. But in a 2020 version, if you put that in there, the audience would hate those characters. You know sure. what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so that was just my, of my two minds. 
Rotten Tomatoes, uh, reviewers and audience score. Berto, what do you think? Reviewers gave it a 90%, and, and audience gave it an 88 What do you think, Colin? I was actually going to guess 90 so um, to vary it up, I'll go 85 and then I'll for a critic, and then I'll do 75 for audience. It went the wrong direction. 99% oh. critic, 95% audience. Wow! Oh, okay. This is one of the highest-rated things on Holy Rotten Tomatoes moly. of all time. Okay, that's a little extreme. <laughs> so why do you think that is? Because, you know, y'all gave it eight. I gave it seven. I liked it for sure. Yeah. But I wouldn't put, I, you know, I could, I could maybe give it an eight, but I, f- I found myself enjoying it for sure. And there, there weren't really boring moments, but I wasn't like, oh, my God. You know, there weren't moments like that really for me. I thought it was a very pleasant, enjoyable, entertaining watch. But there, but it didn't move me to the core, the way that it would need to in order for me to give it like a nine or a ten. But why? Why do you think it's so off the charts for everyone else? Well, okay, so I don't know why it's so off the charts, honestly. Well, no, I have a couple ideas. But first, let me let me defend my eight and why I didn't go nine, for example. Like defend your me, eight. <laughs> I'm gonna defend my eight. Like okay, to me, first of all, it looked beautiful. Yeah. It, it just looked great, and the, the music and the visuals were so entertaining by themselves. Yeah. She was very fun to watch. Yeah. And the little girl, too. Like, everyone they cast in her, in, in her role, like, it was just so entertaining to watch. There were so many scenes that I think I will remember for a long time, so they're iconic in that sense. Like, when she's first encountering the basement and the janitor, and you get this contrast of, like, the quote-unquote dumb janitor is actually really good at chess and how how like he becomes sort of like a surrogate father and there's that scene where they take the photo and they don't show us what the photo looks like until the end i just those kinds of things i thought were so well written and directed and even though they didn't which actually i would have liked but i realized would have been boring they didn't like sit there and show me every little move in the games but i did love the the little bits of chessness in it uh I, I've always been, you know, fascinated by by games and, and chess, of course, being such an iconic thing. And so because of all that, I give it an eight. I didn't go nine because I guess, and this is to your point, um, in the end, it, it did follow a, sort of a straight path. There, there wasn't anything that surprising about it. Certainly at the beginning of the show, you get the sense, oh, she's going to be a child or she's going to be a chess prodigy. And she is. And then you get the sense like, oh, she's eventually going to triumph. And she does. And so, you know, everything gets introduced and then you kind of see where it's going. And it does. So from that perspective, I certainly was never like, I can't believe they did that. But at the same time, I was thoroughly entertained. Yeah. What what about you, Colin? Defend your eight. Well, I think that there's an exquisite craftsmanship behind it. I think if you look at the the piece, the 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 actual mechanics of the filmmaking are quite exceptional. So, right down to the costumes that they had the lead character in, they actually gave her different silhouettes to signify where she was along her journey. So she slowly and mm. I don't. I, it covered so many years of this uh, woman's life, and obviously the actress um, did not 
progressed that many years. But because of the way that they designed her, and also with her performance, it you 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 felt like you were watching her over the course of ten years, more than ten years. So that was pretty, you know, mind-boggling to me. It didn't seem like they were using any. Uh, special effects or makeup or anything like that to kind of get a cheap effect of age. But beyond that, the emotional focus of the piece, I think, is resolute. So you mentioned that you thought there would be more scenes of sexism, more um, like the the reality, which I agree, it would have been the reality. It probably would have been, uh, she would have dealt with that a lot more. However, the story is, I think, more about her finding out what the right connections are for her. And so that's why the interaction, the interactions that she has with the main male characters have to be what they are. And so as she's first going from, you know, the guy who was <laughs> Dudley in Harry Potter. I forgot right. his name. Did you know um, that was Dudley, Berto? <laughs> I didn't while I was watching. I kept looking at him going like, why does he look sort of familiar? Yeah. But I couldn't place him, couldn't place him. And then someone was like, you know who that is? And I'm like, no. And when I found out, my mind was blown. Yeah. And then now so I can't unsee him, but. <laughs> right. You, you And you won't be able to. So, and you've got the, you know, him. And then you go to the kid that's now grown up from Love Actually. And then finally... Jojen, um, Jojen Reed from Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, yeah. That one there I did go. know. I, I was very familiar <laughs> with that one. <laughs> right. So so it's kind of... Um, you, you see these exquisitely crafted stages of relationships where she has no idea what to seek with the first. She's figuring out what she wants, but she doesn't know how to seek it with the second. And by the third, she's found a way to at least ask for what she needs, even if she doesn't always know about what to do exactly to get it. And those combine with the script to match her progress in chess, where she starts by playing basically her own, her herself, where she's she's got it all in her head that she's going to win and she's the best and she doesn't have to consider the other player as much. Then by the second, you know, when she gets to the middle leagues, as it were, she's feeling out, okay, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe this, this perfection that I've invented for myself is a little bit false. Then even that, you know, doesn't complete the picture, which is great because even as we develop it's never really the end of the story. And so I loved that they kind of tracked her on this journey where we know even by the end of it, even though she's found herself in a way, she still has a long way to go. So I thought that the the, the visual representation of that was flawless. The reason I didn't give it a 9 or a 10 is because there wasn't the X factor, I guess, like you said, that made it one of my undeniable favorites. It was, Everything was working, and I couldn't deny that it wasn't working, and I had a great emotional journey with it, but some reason it didn't land, and I think that maybe it has something to do with the repetition of shots, because a lot of it is people playing chess. There's a lot of just eye contact and 
very subtle gestures and the moving of pieces, which is fascinating for a time, but at the end of the day, even if it makes total sense for the script and supports the thesis of the narrative, it is what it is. Yeah. Which is innate, which is very high. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if I were a woman, I think I would give it a nine or a 10 because, or put it another way, if this was an Asian American, I probably would have given it a nine or a 10 because it would have, it would have been finally representation in a movie like this. So I would speculate that a lot of the really high ratings are because women are watching this and saying they're feeling what we feel when we watch things like, you know, the, 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 the countless, you know, art forms that are geared towards men, right. And, and get us going. And, uh, so like I said, if this was like an Asian American, like if it was a half Asian boy who, uh, was being discriminated against and managed to you know, become the best chess champion in the world, I probably would have given us a 10 out of 10 because I would have been on the edge of my seat feeling like there's a, wait, there's a hero that represents me. There's a hero that I, and especially if they had little half Japanese kind of things sprinkled out through the, through the show. And so uh, for, for women, I'm wondering if this just feels like finally a, a, a hero that I can feel like is a, is someone that I can relate to, right? Okay, so here's what I want to see. Because one of my favorite books of all time is Contact. And although you could draw some similarities, because in Contact, the, the heroine is a, is a female, and she's uh, you know, sort of in a field of mostly men and stuff like this, there is something subtly different. When we watch a movie, and like the, the good guy, like the hero is a dude, and he happens to be really good at kung fu or maybe he's just like the best spy or he's the best doctor or something. Like we don't watch it and go, finally, a guy is the best at something, right? Right. And I feel like we, we, we fall in this trap a lot with minorities and with women and stuff. Like, for example, you see Black Widow in the Marvel Avengers movies and stuff. Oh, finally, a woman can also kick ass with it. And I just, I feel that it's a little sad, right? Because what I want to see... I don't need to see a woman that can finally do what a guy can do. You know, like I want to see women being the heroes in stories and they're, they just happen to be the hero of that story and they, they are good at what they're good at and they, they succeed in the end. But it wasn't like, finally, it wasn't like, Oh, it's because they're, it was just, she was the hero in this story. And it, and it's a, it's an evolution, right? But, and it's the same with minorities. Oh, so like, let me clarify. So you're saying this, production didn't seem forced or tokenized as well no i actually no no no. i'm actually saying that this one in particular is but but i understand why like it's a period piece it's something that is unusual you're saying that you're saying that queen's gambit is tokenized in the same way that pepper swoops in at the end of endgame yeah i don't think it's written that way yes that's what i'm no no i'm look I, i just i'm not trying to put it down at all I'm yeah. just saying this. We have been watching movies for a century. And when we watch the movies, 99% of them, there's some dude who's the best at something and he wins in the end. And none of us ever go, finally, finally a white dude is good at something. We never do that. So 
I want to see more movies where it's just the hero hero happens to be a, a Colombian, a Japanese person, a woman, yeah. a, a gay person. But it's not because of that or about that or anything. Just that's what they are. And it's just like one of the many descriptors. Uh, describe the hero in this movie. Oh, well, let's see. They're five foot six. Uh, they're, they describe themselves as bisexual. Well, they're they're two, woman. Like, well two things. You know. I mean, yes, in a, in a perfect world, that would be the world we'd live in because we wouldn't have a hundred years of sexism in, in film. <laughs> so, but that's what we've been given, one. Two, if you're going to make a story about a woman playing chess and, and winning in any era, sexism is going to be part of the story. Absolutely. But, so, but that, so the we reason can't, I was, yeah. We can't get away from that. You know what I mean? And, I, I understand but, that. The reason I was using contact as an example is when you read that book, it, th there are some you know moments where it's like, well, I'm a woman. But that's not what that story is about. She's a badass. She's a yeah. badass astronomer. She's but, the hero. But, and but I, read, I, I feel an like enjoyable this, story. I feel like Queen's Gambit um, actually sought to and succeeded to do that, which I is... Would, I agree. I, I think is, I'm failing at my point, because you guys think I'm sort of like attacking it, no, and I'm I not. I think it was fantastic. Well, maybe tell, I just want to see tell me shows and movies that are not about the exception to the rule. I just want to see women as but heroes. But how? Because given the fact that... Anytime you make a movie where there's a minority or anything other than a white male, white cis hetero male, American usually, um, that is not the hero, it feels weird because uh, it, it is feel weird. weird after a thousand of them, after a million of them. Right. But the first few, even if you make them not like you just roll dice and you're just like, well, let's just see what gender. This, yeah, but even if you're just rolling dice, like, we're not going to make this about a woman. We're just going to make this about a person. And this yeah. roll dice and just, okay, it happens to be a woman. Okay, fine. And then you make that movie. Well, as you're making it, as the audience is watching it, it's going to feel very weird just because of the history of film and of our culture. I know. We just got to do more of it, and that way it won't right. feel weird. Yeah. But I there think. are only so many shits Creeks that... Okay, let me... I just wanted to draw a little bit of a comparison between... Queen's Gambit and Shit's Creek. So there might be a Shit's Creek episode coming out soon. Look out for that. I don't know. Um, Kirk has to finish it. But anyway, um, so I love both. But one of them is like Kirk was is talking about and like we're all very aware. I'm not trying to mansplain or anything. It takes place in the 60s, a particular period in time. And Shit's Creek is like a utopic now Canadian. I mean, I know it's not. It was filmed in Canada. But uh there, the the gayness of Shit's Creek is very much an afterthought. There's yeah, there's there are gay characters um, and pan characters, and there's there's a very famous, fabulous gay wedding. I guess that's a spoiler. Sorry, somebody gay or and pan get married, but um, or bi and pan. Anyway, whatever. There's a queer wedding, and it's not talked about. There's not a lot of heteronormative ideas they have to jump over. There's not a lot of. Um, blatant scenes of homophobia there's not really any talk about no one even mentions aids <laughs> that was so refreshing you know it, it it felt great but i think the story had the agency to be that because of the context of where it was said it was like a contained universe and so i think that this show really handled it the best possible way because they didn't hide it but they also, I think, did exactly what you're wanting, Birdo, and they made it just about a chess player. 
I really do. I really do. I think fully it. disagree with this. That part I fully disagree because because all the emphasis and all the talk online was about just like oh the a talk woman online. Grandmaster. Yeah, but that, that's the talk. But you could argue, and and I I think that it would be valid to say this is more about an orphan or a traumatized person who rose the ranks. Of, I mean, of there justice. is that, but. But come on, or someone like, suffering from addiction, you know, a complicated character who uh, found strength in some very mundane ways, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 had a talent. You know what I mean? Like you, like get, say you made this about a man, a boy, it wouldn't have altered the story fundamentally. I don't think. Like you would. could have made this about it a boy, would. and it would have been. It would have had similar beats to it. You know. Oh, I mean, come on, man. Like, what would have been weird about a boy who happens to be a genius who plays chess? Well, like, he's an orphan. He's... Yeah. No one wants he's him. addicted to... He, yeah. Substances? He, yeah. He, he has trauma? Yeah, he's been you traumatized. You guys are wanting it both ways. You want it to be <laughs> a good movie about about a woman being a hero, and at the same time, it's not about a woman. I don't think so. Like, here's what I want to see. <laughs> there's a movie. It, there's a pandemic. There's a doctor. The doctor's a woman. She's great at it. She's one of the best at... But she's a, a, the hero, and that's it. Yeah, I want to see a movie where Berto, there's a woman uh, who's a like, lot of people uh, works say, for the government. But I want to put she, a, I want to put a caveat on what you're saying. A lot of misogynistic, out of touch people say what you're saying. I know you're not meaning it this way, but a lot of people do. When white males, and you're not white, but males, when they watch movies and they see what seems to be tokenization or what seems to be celebration of this other thing. And, you know, for the male, they're watching it and they're like, this wasn't that big of a deal, but man, are women going crazy over this? I mean, come on. Like, we need to move past this because it feels hostile towards white men. You know, if you listen to women going like, finally, you know, a, a story about a woman who like manages to break through the glass ceiling looked at a certain way, it can feel hostile to, to men. It'd be like, I Aye. think you're completely missing it. Aaron Brockovich was a fantastic movie. I liked it better than this. I, w- I gave it probably a 9, maybe 9.5. That's a woman breaking through. But it's also a story about a lawyer doing great stuff. So in my mind, the tokenization level was actually lower, which is weird. Um, I guess I liken this one to if we saw a movie about like the best female uh, power lifter and she beats all the men or something, which would be great, but it's also very tokenized. I want to see movies about heroes and not just women, heroes that happen to be humans that are not always the same cookie cutter human. And I want to see more of them. Millions so that we no longer have to be like, oh, finally a movie about, you know, like... Let me ask you just one question, yes or no. What you're saying right now, is that a criticism of this show or not? No, no, I, I love this show. I you, just, ju- you just have a wish. Sad. This it's is just sad a that wish. This is like an exception to a rule. Yeah. Okay. But there it's is sad. a clapback, I think. There, there is a movement. If you, I, did y'all watch season two of The Boys? Yes. Not, uh, not yet, no. Didn't like yeah. it. Well, I don't think this is a, is a spoiler, but there's this, um, this corporate image. They add another woman to the team <laughs> that woman there's spoilers spoilers abound in terms of who she is yeah. but uh there there's a corporatization 
of the feminist agenda and the gay agenda, where the Vought actually weaponizes it to get support. They they brand the the bisexual as a lesbian. Wait, and by the sell way, that's her. not in the comic books at all. Uh, uh, shit. So ironic. So this is sort of an example of what I'm talking about. In an order in order to like diversify, they made the main bad guy who in the comics is a dude. They made it a woman. Well, but now you have like a woman bad front? guy. I'm talking about the first episode, the first season. Oh, um, okay. Like she, Elizabeth Shue in the in the comic yeah, books, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Shue's character was a dude, and he was horrible. He was evil, and then they made it a woman. Okay, we got diversity, but the di- diversity is like a bad character, like a bad. They couldn't make Huey a woman. They couldn't make the main bad, uh, the main good guy, uh, uh, Butcher, a woman. They had to make like the bad. Anyways, well, I, I, and so I don't I understand think that. It's the well, what's wrong your direction when you go that way? What's the right direction? The right direction is let's make more and more movies with. A variety of humans that are the heroes of the story. So, if you made the boys, all of them girls. No, I wouldn't make the boys. I would, I would copy the comic book almost verbatim. But don't stay, stop there. Make new stories. Make new stories. Yeah. Why okay. do we have to just remake things? Let's let's make new stories. So the problem with remaking is every story written up until now is primarily some white dudes doing stuff. Why don't we write new stories? Yeah. Well, that's what this queen's gambit is trying yes to do. and i i applaud it i want a billion more where it's not even weird it's just another story with a great hero yeah totally all right let's take a break and we get back i will go through my normal list of likes and don't likes L- what do you say guys let's do it hey deserving listeners as you know i'm constantly recommending that people go to therapy we all need therapy from time to time one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp.com. So if you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the slash Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it helps us out. I get a lot of emails from you saying that you're looking for a therapist. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, but I know it can be really hard to find a good one to work with. Like I said, one of the options available to try is BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide, which is amazing. I've been told that you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message with your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And I've been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. So go to BetterHelp.com Kirk to get 10% off your first month of therapy today. So, Birdo, if Colin was trying to be funny and he was trying to make people be a patron, what would he sound like? He would say something like this. Hello, my name is Colin. I am trying a joke on you in order for you to become patrons of this here podcast. Now, because I'm trying a joke, I'm setting it up first, which will require some setup. But once it's set up, you will see... The structure in it and the final payoff will be glorious. Are we out of time? Oops. <laughs> I don't sound like that. <laughs> <laughs> was that, I may, might have been thinking of Colin from like, uh, wasn't it? What was the name of the little uh, peg leg kid in the Christmas Carol? That was, wasn't that little Tim? Tiny little Tim? Tim. You Colin, Tim, all these names, you know, <laughs> blend together for me. You can go with the the kid, the obnoxious kid from the second Harry Potter that was taking pictures like a weirdo oh, of everybody. Colin, Colin Creevy. Cre- you're right. Oh, Colin Creevy. Uh, you're oh, Colin Gryffindor. Creevy. 
And then there's Colin Firth. So all these blend together for me. Oh, I like him. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, okay, my list of likes. I liked that we had a complicated woman character. Although, I wish she was more complicated. That would have upped my enjoyment of this. I felt like her complications was it was welcomed, but I felt like her complications... So th- I'm going to piggyback with a thing I didn't like about this, which is that a lot of heroes in movies throughout film, but maybe particularly lately are these very stoic characters where they are like when we watch devs, for example, (laughs) you know, these, these characters uh, are clearly written and directed to not have any positive emotions. And I I find that it's a, (laughs) it's a trope that I'm, I'm just getting tired of, you know, I agree. Right, and you know, Berto just put on some sunglasses and and looked very, but you know, robotic. It, but it's also like the Matrix, right? Like when they enter yeah. the Matrix, they all act like uh, anime characters, and there's always that one uh, Japanese anime character who is like super awesome as a fighter, but they're like yeah. really quiet, and you oh, yeah. you know they're suffering, but they'll never talk about it, and it's a very Japanese ideal, by the way. Right, and I'm. I'm, if it only cropped up every once in a while, I, I would be fine. But I've, I'm getting tired of these non-emotional, non-real, non. I, I I feel like I'm watching like a blank canvas of a character. Sometimes, do you know what I'm Instead saying? You want like a Woody Allen? Like I, I'm just I'm just gonna tell you everything that's on on my mind because Good. no, so, yeah. So yeah, and that accounts spectrum, for one of mine too. That would be one. I think a reason it would be like a minus the 10 or by the minus nine is because there was that one scene remember when they were playing squash and she had that really authentic moment where she's laughing and being goofy i i feel like that there could have been more of that where we see the the walls go down because i know part of the performance was building those walls but you know they're not like that all the time you know so few people are yeah right exactly and and i find that it's a trope and i'm getting tired of it and if, mm-hmm. I, if I only saw it every once in a while, it wouldn't bother me, but I'm seeing it so odd. But anyway, complicated woman character, very refreshing. Uh, we have a lot of time to explore who she is and how she reacts to things and see a very long story arc. And the story is 100% focused on her. And the actress does a tremendous job uh, you know, with all the various different ups and downs. Um, by the way, Birdo... That actress looks like she could be your sister. <laughs> really? She has those really wide eyes, just like you do. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, she and looks the red hair. And the- <laughs> she looks just like some someone who could be related. You're both to you. gorgeous. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I liked that it was. Uh, God, stop that. Um, I I I liked that it was a simple story, and you know, it wasn't. There were no car chases or guns or violence. Or, I'm not going to write a third act where the character learns a valuable life lesson and then yeah. they go on a car chase. And okay, Charlie. Um, <laughs> and yet it was very entertaining. You know, I was I was pretty much gripped the entire time. Mm-hmm. But it but it was a v- to to I find it's very commendable when a screenwriter can can take something so mundane like adaptation. I mean, adaptation the first yeah. two thirds of the movie is still an excellent movie. <laughs> excellent, and it's really a story about something very mundane. It's about a, an, a journalist who befriends some kind of character who likes to get 
orchids from the from the swamps of of Florida. And Technically, about, it's about and the about a writer, writer who's trying, trying to, to write that yeah. boring story. <laughs> but it's such a it's such an entertaining movie, and this production similar, very simple story. They didn't there was there was very little sensationalizing, and yet entertaining, which I thought was great. Y'all mentioned cinematography was just out of this world. I cannot think of another production that has as good of a style, a look, cinematography, a tone, the sets. I'm pretty sure who whoever was in charge of the of the locations and the sets and the rugs and the the chairs and the wallpaper and the light fixtures has some advanced uh there's some sort of advanced savant when it comes to shooting <laughs> interiors. You know what I mean? I mean, these locations yeah. were so fantastic. And every little detail. The other thing was I'm old enough to remember these kinds of locations. I'm old enough to remember what TVs looked like back then. You know, I, I, didn't, I wasn't yeah. alive in the 60s, but in the 70s, a lot of things still existed, you know? Yeah. People in the in the 70s didn't have brand new TVs. They had TVs from, you know, 1968 yeah. or something. And so much of this was spot on. I mean, there were so many little details and whenever I watch period pieces, I'm 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 looking I'm always looking for like, ah, oh, when are they going to throw in some something from the 70s? <laughs> They're going to a collar or a a handbag or a chair or a TV set or a phrase. There was one phrase that actually kind of threw me. I think someone said something like, yeah, I kicked his ass. And I, I was like, they didn't say that back then. But oh. uh, they would have said something like, yeah, you really licked him, which doesn't, you know, oh. that was something they said all the time back then. You, you really licked him, you know, like keeps a, really? keeps a licking and keeps on ticking. Yeah. Oh. But but you never hear that at all today. It's a oh. weird phrase. Right? I mean, I say lick a lot for other reasons, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, Wait, so so total parentheses, sorry to <laughs> add Star Wars in every conversation. <laughs> but this is one of the things that I didn't like about some scenes in the first season of Mandalorian and in <laughs> one brief scene of the second season that they added colloquialisms and sort of like the kind of chat that you would do currently and uh, maybe as a way to like relate, like but it LOL. totally threw me out. Like and LOL so like those anachronisms, which, yeah. you know, this Star Wars is a long time ago. This movie, is a, oh, this show is a long time ago. I hate when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. There's a fine balance there where, of course, you have to use language and, and at least some slang to flesh out the characters. But at the same time, if there's like a, you know, R2-D2 is talking to C-3PO and C-3PO is What's just up? like. What's up, Doc? What's up? I have FOMO, LOL, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the 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 style from beginning to end, the look, the sets, the dresses was so accurate and so like beautiful. The one criticism I would have is when we look at the 60s and beyond, we see a lot of black and white film and uh pictures. And what this uh will do to people's minds of today is it they'll think everything was colorless. There was a lot of color back then uh, because if you wanted to have a, a really standout dress, you wore bright-ass green, especially in the 60s. I mean, the 60s was technicolor abound. I mean, they, they went crazy with colors in the 60s. 
But because everything's in black and white, or most things are in black and white, or at least the film is very subdued and the color isn't very good, they in this in this production everything was muted. There was hard. Mm. No one wore like bright reds or greens or oranges. But you would have seen that everywhere, especially by the late '60s. Um, so that that was a little bothersome to me. But what are you going to do? Um, I really loved that there were no cheesy moments, uh, except for a couple towards the end. There was the there was a moment with the dad, the last scene with the dad in the house, which I found to be a little cheesy, and the camera angle was super cheesy to me because she starts to I don't know if you notice this as Beth starts to. Well, how much do you want for the house? Well, it's too expensive. Well, how much is it? You know, as she starts to lay into him, you adopted me, that's kind of stuff. The camera angle starts to move down to look up at her, and the camera angle starts to look up and down on him. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Mm. And that's a, very, that. that's a very film school 101 thing that you do, but it was so obvious, and I was just like, oh, boy, here we go. And it was really <laughs> kind of exaggerated. If it was a little subtler, I would have been okay. And it didn't need it. it. There was enough power in the dialogue that you didn't need that direction. But but aside from that, um, and then there was another kind of monologue moment at the end as well. But anyway, it was very little cheesy. And the main, the main non-cheese that almost every production has is – Usually you'll have cheesy villains that I won't like, or you. So the the uh, orphanage was not great, but you wouldn't characterize it as like abusive. Right. There was no nurse ratchet. Right. <laughs> the 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 janitor was just a nice guy. He wasn't wanting to have sex with her. Like I kept waiting. Right. Like okay, when's he gonna want to have sex with her? Right. Right. Or. The the black guy who the orderly I'm like oh when when some when he's gonna when is he gonna walk in on her when she's going to the bathroom like and the Soviets were like weren't yeah. villainized they're just like regular humans living in the Soviet Union um, I felt like they went a little far with that because like, at the very end when she went by the way spoiler when she beats uh, Borloff or whatever his name is uh, he's like celebrating. But he would have yeah. been he would have been not happy. Devastated. Yeah, he would have been like, wait, I just got beat by someone, let alone let alone a woman, let alone an American. I mean, the Soviets and the Americans yep, yep. were at war. It was no joke. So, is it possible that he would have celebrated the way Johnny held up? You know, Ralph or uh, what's his <laughs> name? Um, you're all right, LaRusso. Yeah, LaRusso. He holds up LaRusso and gives him, you know, the, the trophy. The trophy, yeah. Uh, is that possible? Sure. But but the overall gist of the writing was, you know, make an antagonist and then quickly, you know, do a 180 and make you go, oh, it's not an antagonist. You know, like, yeah. Jamie is the evil person, but no, not really. When... You know, when uh, Dudley comes in, he's the evil state champion, but he very quickly is a nice guy. Yeah. When Jojen Reed comes in, you're like, very quickly, he's kind of a antagonist. And then very oh, quickly. Wait, what a perfect role for him, because he's such a, like, small dude, generally. Yeah. And, but they made him a badass in this show, but it's a chess badass. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that. He has this dumbass hat. And a stupid duster and, like, the, the, the dumbest mustache you've ever seen on a dude. He's the coolest chess player in the yeah. world. Hey, yeah. he gave her her first orgasm, so, you know, <laughs> yep, he's cool yep. in my book. King of the yep. nerds. 
Yeah. Um, I also, but anyway, there were so many different tropes that this show did. Every every episode, there were probably like five moments where I was like, "Oh boy, here comes trope number thirty-two," and it wouldn't do it. Yeah. And I, you yeah. know, like like the the mom, the adoptive mom. She she had she had complicated. She had a, she was a complicated person. She was a she was not the best mom, especially at the beginning. But then she kind of developed into a good mom, but she had sort of issues and she fell in love with this guy. And, you know, like it. Yeah. Every time I was like, oh, here we go with this. And it wouldn't go that way. I was like, oh, okay. Oh, and the Mexican guy is going to be. Oh, no, he's just the Mexican guy. Right. He's just the Mexican guy. Like it's. Yeah. That, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I like I like that a lot uh, because, you know, when you watch enough movies and TV shows, you eventually just see these things coming. And then when they come, you're like, oh, yeah. I also Here's like this. Here's a naive noob question for you guys, really quickly. The yeah. um, the her main guy that she liked from the beginning, the journalist. He was. I mean, this is gonna sound so stupid. He was gay, right? Oh, I don't know. What, wasn't he? Wasn't I that the that. the reason why he never? Because I thought he, he was, liked her, but she rejected him. No, no. Weren't they interrupted? He, no. Remember, he was staying in that room with the other guy, and that's when. She came. I mean, she. He obviously liked her, but I got the sense the reason it never went anywhere is because he he actually was was a homosexual. That's he not how I took it. I took it as it was circumstantial, partially, and her distancing, and they just sort of cross paths, and okay, it, just didn't, it just didn't. It just didn't. It just didn't work. I think I don't know though. I don't know. But I you're right. You there is a there is a sexual fluidity. I mean, I when I was talking about her journey, I mentioned the three men, but she also sleeps with a woman and there's yeah. you know, there's not a whole lot. I mean, the word lesbian, gay, bi, or the words rather. None of them was, yeah. they're not even said. And it's just kind of matter of fact whoever she's attracted to or not attracted to. Yep. Yeah, I I enjoyed that, but again as those two minds in that when the one time when she gets together with a woman, it was during her huge night of d- self destruction, the That's night true. before the championship. She oh, yeah. gets Very super true. drunk mm-hmm. and ends up sleeping with a woman, and it's un and it's unclear if that was something of a, a that revealed her bisexuality or revealed self-destruction or something like that. I really didn't like that character, the other the other person. Um, the I mean, I thought she was portrayed very well and I, I liked the actress and stuff. I just, uh, the character, I was like, she was such a saboteur. I was like, get away. Go. Get. You know? <laughs> like, and she's trying well, to she, do the right thing and she's like, oh, well, then in that case. Well, she saw her, I think, in a way she was a very important character because she was attracted to her success. And so that was another affirmation for Harmon in that, Oh, you know, people exactly like, is this what I, is this what I have to offer? Because I'm a very successful chess player. Then people are drawn to me and I get their attention. She needed that. You're right. It's just, and so I'm, I'm totally not complaining, but like, I think it's great. I uh, show wise, I just was like, get away. You, Ruiner, like she's trying <laughs> yeah. to do good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing, there's a there's a line where at the end where he says the press are going to want to talk to you. You're bigger than the monkeys, and I really <laughs> they said that. Yeah, I really liked that oh. because as I'm always talking about, Berto, you know this. Yeah, yeah, we tend to look back in the past and reduce an entire decade 
to like one or two things. When you think of like just any famous person from the 50s, you think Elvis Presley, okay? Maybe you think Frank Sinatra, maybe Marilyn Monroe, maybe James Dean, but like it never goes beyond that. And of course, 50 years from now, they're going to look back to us today and they're going to think think of of me. (laughs) They're thinking of one person and we all know who that is. It's a politician, right? right? It's, you know. Oh, I thought you were going to say Lady Gaga. It's it's Kucinich. No. Um, They are going to reduce like a 20 year period of time to Donald Trump. Because yeah. because oh my God, that, that'll, so they won't they that's won't so remember depressing they won't remember Adele or you know uh, Lady Gaga or Bradley Cooper or <laughs> you know all the other people that you know we pay attention to of which <laughs> in our time right now there are thousands of people we could rattle off off the top of our head that are major what do you call them like celebrities yeah. that we would pay attention to someone that you would say you're bigger than blank and right. for. Uh, another trope that they will do, another inaccuracy that you'll see is you'll they, they'll say you're bigger than the Beatles. Like that's what they would be tempted to say. But people of the '60s know that the Monkees were gigantic, but they didn't last because they sure. were considered a joke and they were loved by young people. You know, like mm-hmm. really young people. And so today. A lot of people don't even know them. You know, they might have heard of the Beatles, but they don't know the Monkees. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and I, so I liked that as well. Just a little, just a little touch of like, yeah, it was a little bit more accurate. Yeah, good catch, good yeah. catch. Um, also, it had mostly accurate ch- chess. So, Colin, you say you d- don't know chess; that you know the moves, but you don't. You play. Bruno, have you ever played chess very much? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I um I've gone in waves throughout my life. When I was little, I was really into it. But I, it's so funny when that scene when she's like, "I don't like these books that you, know, you memorizing all the." That's exactly how I felt, and that's why yeah. I stopped playing. Yeah, because I had these friends. I forget what grade we were in, and they all like reading the books, and I would like with Sicilian defense, and it seemed so boring to me yeah. to have to memorize, and so I gave up because I would be trying to like you know forecast the moves and and then they would do something and like well that's anyways so then i went without playing for years and years and years and then uh maybe 10 years ago or something uh my brother was like we should play chess and i'm like i haven't played in it forever and then i got into this uh youtube uh downward spiral of chess videos and then that went and then more recently i got into it again probably because of the queen's gambit so yeah you had a very similar uh childhood in essence and I consider it similar to my life with golf. Um, I've I've had a couple different golf uh, gambits, if you will, Stinks. in my life. And it's a very similar process where in the beginning, you're terrible. You know, when you first right. play chess against people that barely understand chess, you will be crushed right away. Because right. it's, it's, but after you play, say, you know, 20, 100 times, you, you start actually being able to compete and you'll crush the newbies, you know? Right. And, but, but in order to get to the next plateau of ability, that's where you read all the books. That's where you literally play. You know, it's well known in the chess world that in order to get good, you have to play like thousands of chess games. You, it's not just yeah. a matter of like getting a little bit better. You have to, you have to just dedicate like i am going to play thousands of chess speed chess 
and I'm going to lose most of them because I'm playing people that are better than me. But eventually things will start clicking in my brain. Maybe like seven years from now, something will start clicking in my Mm -hmm. brain. I mean, that, that's the way you do it. It's the same with golf. Like when you first start playing golf, you're hitting like you're on a, on a, on an 18 hole, you're hitting like 130 or something. (laughs) And then if you play enough, now you're starting to get sub 100, you know, it's sort of like with bowling, for example, the first time you bowl, you're hitting lots of gutter balls. You start bowling a little bit more. Now, you know, you, you crest a hundred points on the bowling alley and you're thinking, man, I'm getting pretty good. Right. Well, if you want to get to like above 200, you've got to bowl every day and you've right. got to think about your technique and, and it's all in the weeds of the boredom and mm-hmm. no fun anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I, I had a very similar thing, but the, the story that I'll tell is I'm, I'm probably, so I would have been uh, maybe like fourth grade and my brother's best friend lived next door and he was a state champ in chess. And, Whoa. and this was when I was really into chess. I'm in the fourth grade and I love playing chess. And I, and I sat him down his name is Kelly and I'm like, Hey, play me in chess. And he's like, okay. And so we sit down and we play chess and I beat him <laughs> and I'm like, I'm a chess God. I beat the state championship. And you know, my life with chess kind of, you know, waned after a while beyond that. Fast forward, I don't know, 10, 20 years later, I'm thinking back on that time and yeah. I'm like, and the whole time up until that moment, I'm like, <laughs> when I was in fourth grade, I beat the I state champ. I beat champ. the state champion. <laughs> and, it, and then I, I thought about it just for half a second more and I was like, well, he let me win, of course. <laughs> of course. Like, there's no way that I beat him. <laughs> you know what I mean? But for years, I thought I beat the state championship. Dude, in a small, tiny way, I remember that realization with my dad. You know, when the moment, I don't know how old I was, but the moment I realized, oh, wait a minute, all those games we used to play, when I won, I don't know if I really won. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good old person is to trick you into yeah. actually thinking that you actually yep. won. The last thing that I loved about this production is that they did not say based on a true story. This would have been so tempting to say, based on a true story. You could have said it was kind of based on um, uh, Bobby Fischer or something. And so many movies and TV shows now, in order to raise the, I don't know, the profile or to make it more intense, will uh, loosely, extremely loosely, Mm -hmm. base it on a true story. And then when you look up the story, the real story, you're always like, completely disappointed you're just like oh my god you made up all of that stuff like if you're gonna make a fictional story just make a fictional story people write fiction you know lord of the rings isn't based on anything that happened people that write- would have been awesome lord of the rings based on a unreal event <laughs> i mean literally there are movies that are that are like that and I'm, i just want to shake these writers and say like just write fiction it's okay you know then you're free to write whatever you want to and you're and 99% of people never Google, is this accurate? And so they just get away with it. It drives me nuts. And it actually took me a couple episodes watching this because I assumed it was based on a true story because it just has that feel to it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and I looked it up. I was like, oh, this is fiction. And I was just like so happy. I thought, oh, yeah. someone just wrote fiction and yeah. made a fictional story. You know, uh, Indiana Jones, fictional story. It's just like, just write fiction. <laughs> Colin, did you like that too? 
I did. Yeah, I feel like they would have cheapened it. And you were mentioning that they didn't pull any um, big cheesy moments, or, or rather, they didn't generate them by creating unnecessary extraneous drama, which was very much Ratchet. You know, we, we mentioned Ratchet earlier, and it felt like <laughs> just being so separate from uh, pulling those punches really helped drive home the um, effectiveness of the narrative because you're not being pandered to. And that's another reason why I think it's harder for some viewers to, like us, as we've discussed earlier, maybe attach some of what we would have thought would have gone into a story that takes place with a woman in a highly sexist time, in a highly sexist time in a highly sexist world. Because uh, I think that maybe they were tempted to throw in some of those scenes and perhaps decided that it wasn't uh, wasn't right to do so because um, it wasn't it didn't maybe work thematically with what they were going for. But anyway, not to we've talked about that to death. But um, I wanted to mention also something that. You know, you, you were, Kirk, talking about the way the sets looked. And I, again, I think the locations were phenomenal. But uh, the camera work highlighted those in this really uh, subtle way that made you feel like every set was a game board. You know, because they, yeah. they had these really wide uh, shots that would pull in and show you the entire room or... And, and, and it would slowly get closer, you know, and, and when Harmon would enter these big chess rooms, mm. we'd, we'd really get to see where she was walking from. And it made everything feel so real. And also there would be really cool crane shots where they'd, I don't know if they're crane shots, I'm probably mislabeling that, but they'd pull out of windows. At one point they pulled out of a window and they wrapped around the building. And just these, um, just that sense of uh, life in the camera really made it feel like you were a part of the game. And so every single scene you're like, all right, I'm down for it. And also it was important that it was accurate. Like you were saying, because I don't think that would have worked if it felt like they were a bunch of set pieces. So in other words, real location plus the implication of game board via camera, those powers combined, I think made something exquisite. Yeah. As you're saying this, like totally agree. I hadn't thought about this at all. But, but wow, because I felt like I really understood the orphanage layout and where everything was, and I felt like I inhabited it. Same thing with their, her house. Obviously, less so all the other places because we don't spend as much time, but, but you're right. And there is something about it like positional. Um, wow, good catch. Do, do either one of you have memories of uh, taking erasers into the outside the classroom and and beating them to get the chalk out Colin? yeah like i okay. never had to do that but i certainly remember the the challenge of chalk <laughs> <laughs> so colin and even though you're younger you had that experience i did absolutely and i actually really enjoyed it and i and i still kind of do it I, wasn't it's all been a like long whiteboards and stuff <laughs> well it was whiteboards you know it's it's one of those these things as I'm as I, I'm about to enter my 30s. I'm realizing that memories of elementary school and middle school are blending together in terms of wait a minute, what when was I playing with the, these toys? When when did that transition happen? And also technology has become a little vague. And I'm like, which computer <laughs> was I using? Was it still green? Because I have vague memories of the green computers, and and then slowly, it, it, you know, the Microsoft stuff. So. Um, 
anyway, yeah, definitely. And I actually really enjoyed the 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 chalk because I always thought that when and I was often drawing with chalk on sidewalks. That was one of my I, I love doing that because I wasn't too good at um, small coloring. Let me let me try and define this a little better. So yeah, yeah. coloring that takes place on a page. Not was wasn't too good at that as a kid. You're better I, I, at because broad, I got, broad sketches. Right, because I would get frustrated. I would get frustrated that it would take so much time to fill in all mm. these things. But with chalk, you've got this big canvas, big old bold strokes. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I I welcomed it. I asked the teacher to let me bang, and also I would pretend it was magic. So I would bang it and pretend I was some I was doing a spell. I'd be like. Shana Kazoo huh. or Expelliarmus. Well, not Expelliarmus because I hadn't read Harry Potter at that point. Well, but you I know. wonder if this was sort of a, a thing in the U.S. that wasn't as popular in Colombia. Chalk, of course, was. And I, I have memories of every day my hands would be covered in chalk and <laughs> my pants would have chalk marks because you either were asked to go up or just in between classes, we would get up and draw all sorts of things on the board. We'd throw chalk to each other. But what I don't ever remember... Is who cleaned the erasers? It's probably the janitor. Um, <laughs> yeah. Maybe they often did. Uh, but some teachers would ask us to go outside. Mm. It wasn't into the basement. That's kind of a dumb right. thing. Why would you go in the basement? You'd just go outside. You know where you do it, or you do it. That's against where we would go. The That's basement? what that is. Ex- I was thinking that exact same thing, Kurt. Because I remember it would be like, "All right, you go to the outdoor classroom and clap on the erasers." Like right. that's exactly what it was. And I also, as we were talking about it, I know that I'm longing for the sound of chalk on a chalkboard, mm. like as in my like what we're quote unquote ASNMR. Yeah, like I, well, I don't know, about like I know you can make it really, really creepy and and jarring, but like just the the that that, that kind, not the e, the screech, but. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking up chalk ASMR, and there definitely <laughs> is chalk ASMR on uh, YouTube. Uh, but there's two categories I'm seeing. One is what you're talking about, which is people drawing chalk on a chalkboard. Very. But then there's another exactly one. Exactly like what Birdo's doing. There's yes. another type of chalk ASMR. Can either of you guess what it is besides drawing on a, on a board? Skanking with chalk. That's a good guess, but no. <laughs> Um, I'm going to say crunching chalk. Yes. Eating oh. it. Oh, eating? Right. Wait. The, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> eating. <laughs> so there's an Asian guy, ASMR, edible chalk, wow. no talking, oh crunchy eating sounds. Oh, my God. A Korean oh guy. Korean, a Korean guy eating, and, it, and he has, and he, the, the, the picture is, it's a big, chalk thing and it's halfway in his mouth and he's he's looking very seductive at the camera <laughs> i was gonna say that's suggestive yeah yep all right so let's get off this train um <laughs> so other so things i didn't like was that she beat almost everyone particularly in the beginning this is uh, another thing about movies like this of hero quests that are a little i don't know it i wish it was win three, lose one, win three, lose one, that kind of thing. One, because it would have made me worry more about her losing. Like, I never once worried that she was going to lose or that she was going to, or I never thought she wasn't going to eventually win the whole thing. Like, I I never, because they never really made it seem like she was capable of losing, you know? So there was that. 
so I told you, I see what you're saying, and I don't disagree. But there is a different modality. Uh, it's like the uh, Ender's Game style of storytelling, where where your hero is a savant, and that is a style. And in but these once you go to of, the level of the world stage, they're all savants. You know what I mean? But that's what we encountered, and I but, think. But they she did. crushed all of them. Now, Not, now yes, she did. That, when well, she was in the world championships in the Soviet Union, yeah, and she crushed even. The main guy, she crushed. But that him. was at the end. That was at the very end. But you know? uh, leading up to that, I'm not saying it's a bad yeah. way to write a script. Yeah. I'm just saying that it would have been more enjoyable for me if I worried about her losing and winning. And when you play chess, no one wins all the time. Even people that are really good at it, they lose sometimes because Kasparov was undefeated. But Until in, like, little time. matches here and there. You know yeah, what I mean? I like, yeah. the one time she did lose was to, um, she would lose to Benny sometimes, like, when she yeah. they were doing that speed rounds. Speed. Yeah. And um, so that actually I I liked because I was like, oh, okay, she's not, like, a god of chess. She she can be beat. You know what I mean? I, I, I know. I, again, I do hear, it's, it's just the difference between, so, like, in a Jackie Chan movie, he starts off terrible. Oh, he might know a little bit, but he's mostly terrible. And he's got to go to the master. And then he slowly starts getting better. But there's a different kind of movie, like the Steven Seagal movie, where the guy's a badass to start with. He almost never has a challenge, except when he's facing the final bosses. Right. And even then, it's like, because they have guns. Right. This was the Steven Seagal of chess movies. <laughs> well, I think in, in some ways, maybe the theming of the movie, you know, because I, I mentioned earlier, like the difference between the story and the plot. I think that maybe the story was overwhelming the plot at that point. I would agree. I think that they they wanted to communicate because again, the script was so finessed and almost like, and that's the thing about a, a script. Sometimes you can work it within an inch of its life and, and you, you don't see a flaw, but then the flawlessness becomes a little apparent in this instance, because, you know, she had mastered her, in other words, she had gotten to a particular place with her self-esteem issues and her consumption issues and her depression that those elements those factors were less in control of her and i think they wanted to capitalize on that and be like she's she's playing with the big boys and because she's learning about herself and she's done the work on herself she's gonna win in this way but i i mean i would agree i think it it felt a little unrealistic and i had that moment of just lack of uh of tension even though i was still enjoying what was visually happening Right, particularly in the beginning when it's clear that she hasn't studied it, she hasn't had a lot of experience playing with a lot of different players, and right from the beginning, she just crushed, like, humiliated everybody, you know? Now, is mm-hmm. that possible? For sure, but it just made it kind of boring for me to watch. I'm like, well, we've seen this scene before. She's going to crush everyone. And oh, so you felt this way throughout, like, from the beginning to the end? Yeah, Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, like when hmm. she enters the tournament with, like, when she's doing that thing with the schoolboys and she's in that big half circle with, like, 20 different opponents, I would have been more, it would have been better for my taste if she lost two out of 20, you know, and and said, and she would even say something like, yeah, I let that one get away from me, um, good game. You know, just something other than, like, She's just a god of of chess. Where mm-hmm. I want to, I want to worry a little bit. You know what I mean? I don't want to feel like, well, you know, I know where this story is going. She's gonna win the whole thing, which is what happened. Um, 
The other thing, yeah, go ahead. There is this element though of the uh, big fish in little ponds, and that is that is a real phenomenon. You see it in athletics all the time. Like as an example, you know, I swam in high school, and the best guy on my team was amazing. You know, and then we went to state. And I got to see like the state level and I was like, oh man, and that's not even Olympics level. And so like you're in your little pond and you think, so I think what they were demonstrating, don't disagree with you ultimately that it definitely lowered the stakes, but there's like, she was a huge fish and she didn't get to the right pond for a while. Right. Um, the other thing, <laughs> this isn't a complaint about the movie, but why in the world, I understand at the lower levels, but once you get to a certain level, why in the world do you have to record your own moves? Can't oh, I you, know. How boring. <laughs> can't you just, can't someone else keep track of your stupid games, like, so that you can focus on the game itself, you know? It might be actually as a result of the players themselves, though. They might be like, I, 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 I'm not going to trust anyone. Like, I'm going to have my moves because, you know. Yeah, they, maybe. they tried it, and there were too many controversies. Yeah. I got a Phantom Menace chessboard I, that I didn't play that much that would record your moves. It was, I think, this Ooh. was late <laughs> elementary school, and and every time you placed one of the pieces, it would go beep and then <laughs> put it on the little thing. So that's awesome. Yeah. What's the Phantom Menace? <laughs> you you had a chessboard that was Phantom Menace themed. Yes, I was so obsessed with Star Wars that that was a gift that was bequeathed unto me. Yes, so, and I wish I still had it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. What I mean, what were the figures? Were there like Yoda? See, figures? as Bruno just said that, I don't remember if there was a Jar Jar piece. I can very re- visibly, I can remember the Queen Amidala Queen. Because it had the oh, right, of course. She she had the big course, huge yeah. pigtails from the Senate scene where she's like, I will not defer. And then we've got the, I think the villains. The I, I think the, the funniest thing I do remember is that Darth Maul was the queen, which I always thought was a little funny uh, because. What? <laughs> you know, well, I think it's funny now. Well, he's the because, most mobile, right? So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because there's a Plinket joke. So Mr. Plinket does these uh, Star Wars videos. Yeah, I yeah. will wrap oh, this yes. up. This has nothing to do with Queen's Gambit. I'm so sorry. But he he's he he makes all these comparisons to, like that are making fun at the way that George was inclusive in the prequels because he was terribly. <laughs> Ter- he was terrible at it and so he's like we had the first uh, he talks about like how racist the Nemoidians are and then he's like and then we even saw the first homosexual in Star Wars and then he adds like dance music to Darth Maul doing the, the lightsaber moves oh, so yeah. anyway just saying yeah um, the other thing I didn't like another trope it wasn't that bad but that they tr- uh, they conflate genius with mental issues Mm. This is a frequent yeah. thing that they will do in movies that it's like, I'm just tired of it. It's also not a very accurate way of looking at people. And it Anyway, the other thing I didn't like was that it made addiction seem really easy to recover from. Oh, yes. Like, she doesn't get any help. She just says, yeah, I'm just not going to drink or take pills anymore. It's just a decision, man. Yeah, she just makes that choice, and it's no big deal. And, you know, she had a couple bad moments where she binged and no consequences from that, by the way. And then she just uh, she just moves on. And uh, I'm reminded of Flight with Denzel Washington, where he's the pilot. And that is a good depiction of addiction and making it entertaining at the same time, because you just see how 
nearly impossible it is to overcome addiction when it when it gets its its roots down. Yeah, best I, I've seen is Mad Men, but I think I have to change my rating now. It's a seven. I, I didn't oh, even come think about on. It. No, that's a big think. enough leap. It really is. I, no. I just as he said that it re- it reminded me of that scene where she drops it in the toilet. As if to say, no more. And I'm like, no. Look, I could defend it just as easily. That's a moment in time. We don't see the rest of her life. This I is only within true. a matter of like a couple hey, months. Hey, you know? he's, in my, he's in the seven camp and you're alone in the eight camp. So oh, live please. with it. You quitter. People's front <laughs> of quitters. <laughs> um, so what if we did that every time we do one of these things where it's like... <laughs> Whoever's in the lone camp tries to suck someone into their camp. Yeah, it's like a meta game. Yeah, um, and because I've changed mind sometimes in talking with y'all, like sometimes. Ooh, like, but then I have to take a benzo, and I'll see all of y'all in the ceiling. I'm like, "Where's Colin?" <laughs> I mean, do, none of us have control over our ratings anyway. Palpatine is behind them all. So. Yeah, oh, that's no, 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 no. Jar Jar is behind. Them. <laughs> Jar Jar, sorry. Yeah. Um, the last thing I didn't like is a small thing where this happens a lot as when they need an establishing shot of like an exterior or an airplane landing and and they don't and they'll they'll digitize they'll they'll digitally create it so i don't know if you mm. the, in the last episode an airplane lands in soviet union and it's pretty clear it's a computer oh, right. generated <laughs> uh, oh isn't it like a sunset when it happens no it's raining and it's night um it might be okay. sunsetty i don't know but the point is is that we didn't need the shot. We, we, right. we, we, the, we, you know, and you can just see them doing the storyboard. She's in the plane with the, like the CIA guy or the security guy. Right, right. And they're talking. And then the next scene, it, she, she's in a car. She's getting into a car and she's going to the hotel. They need yeah. some, they need some scene there where they're like, well, maybe someone, people won't realize that the plane landed. <laughs> <laughs> So so instead of just How going, how do you get from inside a plane? You joke, but people, you joke, but there are script notes that are like that. Believe me. I yeah. See. So so I could see that, and then yeah. I, and I could see them saying, okay, well, we don't have time, and we can't actually shoot an accurate because because <laughs> they really want to shoot accuracy right. too, and it would have been a Soviet Union plane yeah. that doesn't exist anymore, and so. Uh, instead, they're like, "Well, we'll just we'll just create a digital shot," and it it completely ruins it for me because oh, it's you can't sh- you cannot digitally create a plane without it looking like a digital plane to my eyes. You're right. Anyway. I'm I'm going down to a six now. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but to me, it's just like just don't have the shot. You know, everyone understands that if she's in a car. She, the plane must have landed, and she. Mu- I mean, do we need to see everything? Do we need to see her, you know, get the bag out and like well, actually, walk I was across the tarmac? How she got her bags. Yeah, like now where are the bags? It. Well, yeah. now I I didn't realize how much I was wondering. Now it's a five because without <laughs> knowing where those bags came We're from, we're gonna end up at a one. <laughs> All right, let's conclude with uh, just some notes about the people who worked on this. We have Scott Frank, who's been around a long time. Do you know what? He, he's mainly a writer, so this is his first directorial thing, but as far as I know. But do you know what else he's written? Any idea? I do not. No. He wrote Logan, which is a very... Oh, my gosh. Love. I love Logan. Yeah. Logan. Yeah. He wrote Minority Report, which is great. I like Minority Report. He wrote Out of Sight, a Steven Soderbergh movie, which is really good. I th- I Oh, yeah, 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 with uh, what's-her-name. I uh, love that. When J-Lo. George Clooney. Yeah, J-Lo, right? I like that movie. Yeah. 
A great movie, actually. Um, I think it's J-Lo's best movie, honestly. And Well, there's Geely, so eh, easy. Hey, and, you gotta see Hustler. She kills in that. She's great, but I didn't like that movie tremendously <laughs> as a movie. <laughs> Out of Sight is a great movie. Um, Get Shorty, he wrote as well, which is one of my favorite repeat Wait, watches. Wait, he wrote Get Shorty? The, not the TV right. show, but the, but the movie. The movie, no, Get Shorty. I didn't know there was a TV show. Oh, the TV show, the first season, is so good. The second season... I didn't even know some, about it. Okay, yeah. no, I'm talking about the movie. Yeah. So... Now this guy is one of my favorite writers of all time. What's going on? Yeah. I mean, so How has you like, he been unknown? Like, I don't know his name at all. Yeah, Scott Frank. You like Get Shorty? I love Get Shorty. Yeah, I watch that probably once every six months and enjoy it oh, every single so good. time. Yeah. I didn't know there was a show. I'm going to have to check we that gotta out. We got to have a Get Shorty party. Yeah, yeah. we do. Uh, of course, the lead played by Anya Taylor-Joy. Uh, Anya? 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 Anya. Uh, she is a chameleon of an actress. You remember her from The Witch, of course, right? The Witch. The w- you remember witch. her from Split and Glass yeah. as, you know, one of the abductees, the, mm-hmm. the main abductee. And she's been in a lot of other things as well. Uh, Bill Camp plays the custodian who has oh. been in so many things. And I yeah. love that guy. He plays he's such... A, a role player, yeah. Yeah, he, he's such a complicated actor, and he plays just the most amazing... Whenever I see him, I'm like, oh, casting director really knows what they're doing. My favorite thing that Bill Camp has been in that I that really kind of felt like I discovered him, or I don't know, not discovered, but for discovered him in my life is the night Kurt of... found him. <laughs> yeah is HBO miniseries uh, called The Night Of 2016. Have any of you seen this? No. No. It is really good. It's a story about this uh, a taxi driver, uh, immigrant family, who he has some kind of blackout, and he's accused of killing someone. Ooh, and, sounds interesting. Don't spoil and, it. And the whole miniseries is his um imprisonment and trial and investigation and is the night before the sound the theme song <laughs> and bill camp i believe is the cop if i'm not mistaken mm. anyway and then of course harry melling uh, who plays uh harry beltic who was dudley dursley in the harry potter films that's crazy and we have thomas brody sangster as benny watts who was jojen reed and Game of Thrones yeah. and was a kid in Love Actually, apparently, as you said. I've yeah, never, he's the I've never seen kid. That. I love him. I've never seen that movie. And whenever I see a scene from it, I'm like, this movie is cheesy as... as Wait, oh. what? Love Actually? You've never seen Love Actually? You've yeah. actually never seen it? No. Dude, no. you got to give it a chance. It's a great Christmas movie. It's so... Cheesy? Touching and good. Is it cheesy? Yes, the best kind of cheese. <laughs> Camembert, whatever. We, oh, you got to do it. In my it's household, worth a react video too, because <laughs> you might question oh. some of these relationship dynamics. Oh, really. it's so good. Uh, in my household, we have only space for one super cheesy Christmas movie that we watch every Christmas, which is Christmas at the Cranks. Anyone ever seen oh, that one? I see. Oh, that with um, Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, and um, yeah. Alan. Uh, uh, yeah, that movie is not good, but no. you know, more power to you. No, it is not good, but. 
we watch it every year and it it's more <laughs> it's more Stacy's tradition than mine but it's sort of become mine by osmosis and so <laughs> so we watch that terrible movie every Christmas uh, ours is the holiday so the holiday wow. what's that one it's with Cameron Diaz Jude Law and uh, they she house she house swaps with Kate Winslet one oh. Britain goes to LA LA goes is to Jack Black Britain. in that one mm-hmm yeah yeah uh, is that a Christmas movie? Yeah, they, oh, okay. they, it happens around Christmas time, and one of one, or rather, the English part of it is very idyllic. It's in the countryside and snowing, and so you get you get those warm Christmassy vibes from it for sure. Mm, I feel like we're stretching the Christmasiness. <laughs> so, are there but any... Love Actually is a great movie. I are... like Love Actually too. I, I mean, I do. All right. Um, are there any uh, gay Christmas movies for people to watch? Recently, <laughs> there is there was one with Aubrey Plaza and Mackenzie Davis. Oh yeah, I heard about this. Yeah, and, and Kristen Stewart. They it's uh, the ha- <laughs> I don't even know what the title is. The happiest day, the happiest Christmas, like a Netflix but, movie or something, right? Yeah, and it, it you know it is what it is. It's I bad. love Aubrey Plaza. So if 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 she's oh good in it. she's not in it enough. I oh. also love her, and yeah, but she she does have the best scenes in the movie. Yeah. Okay. Her, her and Dan Levy, both, who I also love. Oh, right. Dan Levy's in it, too. Right. Yeah. Um, so, today, this episode is coming out after we recorded, after we did the live show on YouTube. So, um, but we're recording it before, but I thought we could act like it came out. So, man, that was really fun on Saturday. Yeah, man, that was. I mean, that one moment, though, I couldn't believe everything that could go wrong went wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. We sort of recovered, though. I'm wondering how your elbow is doing, frankly. And then, Colin, I more power to you. That that thing you showed us, like that was amazing. With, I'm with so the, happy that you won, person. I'm pointing to the screen. You know mm-hmm. who you are. Good, good win. Yeah, we know who you're pointing to. And mm-hmm. uh, right. So, uh, have we decided what teams we are? Have, have you dis- we ter- determined that yet? What teams? We well, were. it's the. <laughs> I was about to say drum roll, but they're, the, these drum rolls <laughs> they've already happened. But um, so when we were recording, so today Thursday, it's the day before the pre-show. So the pre-show is happening on Discord for our Friday Discord dish, and so fans will be competing to be to mm. represent you. When you play, each of you will have team... We're just going to use some hypothetical fans here. So, for example, Kurt could be Team Bronwyn. Or Umberto could be Team Ed. Or Team Show. Or Mm. Team Louise. So... Oh, not Louise. That's what's going to happen. I will not be Team Louise. (laughs) You might have to. You you, you don't have a choice. It's whoever wins the trivia tomorrow. I will do whatever team. And then uh, whoever wins, whatever team wins, then what, Colin? The person who you are representing, I'm not sure if I've said it both ways, whoever is representing who, that fan gets to pick a topic. So if Louise it, or Team Louise is Kirk's camp, then Louise gets to pick a topic that we'll yeah. cover on the podcast. And it we can know be all this because this already choice. happened. Yeah, it already yeah, happened. Yeah, she, yeah. She, him, they won already. And so. dudes, what you guys did with the chalk in your mouth on Saturday was just... Don't over don't the top. It. I thought we weren't going to talk about that. Yeah. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. I'll do a little bit of ASMR. That does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because...
You deserve it. Thank you once again for having me, Berto and Kirk. Ooh. <laughs> Stop trying to be funny. <laughs>